Hi, this is Lisa Tamati, bringing you Pushing the Limits, the show that gets deep into the psyche of limit pushers across all genres. Out-of-the-box thinkers, cutting-edge researchers, leaders, athletes, academics, entrepreneurs and social change innovators and more. Cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success, their achievements, their philosophies and motivation. Join me in my quest to find out what makes the movers and shakers of our world tick and what gems of wisdom we can take from their experiences. Brought to you by runninghotcoaching.com, the platform that helps you achieve your health and fitness goals. Right, we're here with uh, Professor Steve Stannard on the Pushing the Limits show where we talk to people who are a little bit outside the box. Uh, Professor Stannard is a research academic and professor in exercise physiology at the School of Sport and Exercise at Massey University. He has a PhD in human applied physiology and also a Master's of Nutritional Science. And as if that wasn't enough, being such an overachiever, he's also cycled uh, for Australia in his younger years and now follows his kids around who are also elite cyclists and triathletes. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> it's very nice to have you. Um, your, your biography does read like uh, you're a slight overachiever or you're a bit of a type A personality. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, 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 I sort of... I sort of um, have the the mantra. I don't know if that's the right word. Of when if the ball rolls, you just sort of keep following it, and or you just roll with it to some extent, and and that's sort of how things have played out for me. You, you opportunities arise, and you think, oh, okay, have a go at that, and you keep going and see what see where it takes you. Is that what, uh, something that you've learned from being a cyclist, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But if, the other thing I've learned is when when opportunities arise, you got to think hard about um, saying no to them. Because you never get asked again, and um, I don't know. That's just life short, isn't it? You got to. Yeah. Well, my Absolutely. wife always says, you know, you, these little things happen, or you take these little decisions. That's part of life's rich tapestry. And I say, I say, um, you know, you got to throw caution to the wind, don't you? Sometimes. Yeah. So that's that's where I'm. At. That's why I've done different things, and you just end up in different places. Ended up with PhDs and masters, and yeah. <laughs> Mind you, mind you, I'd say that if I'd known for a PhD anyway, if I'd known uh, how hard it was going to be and how long it was going to take, I wouldn't have started it. <laughs> Thank goodness we never know when we set out to do these crazy achievements how hard they're actually going to be. Well, well, you would know. So, so I mean, it, that, I, 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 I've, got this, I've got this theory that um, uh, all good a, a, uh, athletes, uh, particularly endurance athletes, have short-term memory loss. <laughs> We definitely have, um, what's that, that pain memory loss, you know, where you can't yeah. remember pain. That's a definite, yeah, because if you actually remember just how bad it was, you wouldn't do it again. <laughs> so, um, Steve, but yes, you have, uh, you are a specialist in exercise physiology and nutrition. Now, how, so you're at the the, the, the cutting face or the research interface you, you've written there um, yep. between exercise science and nutrition, human nutrition. So yep. what sort of groundbreaking research and, and stuff are you involved with? Oh, I'd, I'd like to think all my research was groundbreaking, <laughs> but, but in, actual, in actual fact, most research, you, you know, you do um, isn't. And you, only get, you only end up with the odd bit that, that, that I guess you're lucky enough to, to say um, is really ground, or groundbreaking or learn something new. In fact, I just had, I have... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking from home at the moment, and, and I um, I have my meetings with my PhD students at home because I've got a good coffee machine. Um, <laughs> very important. Came, um, and he's doing a study on on endurance and very high fat diets. Yes, low carbohydrate diets, and that's a bit of a thing at the moment. But but he he's just shown me some preliminary results, and 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 they're sort of good. And I said to him, "Oh, you've got to be so pleased with that because." With most studies you end up doing, you, you, especially with humans, and um, humans, humans are always hard to study, you, you rarely, you, it's not often you really see something interesting and you see something good. And he's seen something really interesting and good, and I'm not going to, it's up to him to, to tell the world. <laughs> but but yeah. it's, it's, you know, his thing won't be overly groundbreaking, but be very interesting and we'll get some, some coverage. But um, it's not often you, you see that. So in terms of groundbreaking, um, you know, I'd like to, <laughs> I like to think some of my stuff was, was interesting and maybe a little bit groundbreaking, but mo most of it's 
most of it's just interesting to boffins like me. <laughs> to boffins. <laughs> what sort of um, areas have you studied? And tell me a little bit about your, your, your career path and what you've been doing the last few years. Well, I guess um, oh, I'll tell you a little bit of... I, I like telling stories, so I'll tell you a little bit of a story. I, I, um, so when I was... Um, I finished my, uh, finished my first degree and... Um, um, uh, it was in agricultural science, in fact, and then I, I decided I didn't want to be a, didn't want to keep studying because I had enough. And I went over and raced my bicycle in Europe for a few years. And at that time, as an you know, you, you, when, when you become an endurance athlete, you realise how important nutrition is. Um, and I, I guess I took an interest in sports nutrition. Um, and when I came back and decided, I tell people at the time it was in the early nineties, I didn't want to become a Bel- Belgian pincushion. Um, <laughs> And so I came back and um, uh, and studied a master's degree in human nutrition, um, and because, as I said, the, you know you realise how important it's, it's one of those things in in sport, of course, that you've got control over is you know your training, your nutrition. There's the things you don't have control over, like who your parents are and how much yeah, money. yeah, your genetics. Um, but I, uh, then I um, one thing led to another, and I ended up doing a, a PhD in that area. But so that this this the, the research that I've done mainly. Um, because of my master's and my interest in nutrition and then physio- and then sort of human physiology revolves around that interface. So um, I, was, I was quite interested in, in early on in what's, um, in fact, one of the things we used to do as cyclists back in those days was train often uh, before breakfast um, because a couple of reasons. A, because if, you, if you're not very organised, you sort of got to get up and go to meet your training partners. But B, you teach your body to burn fat, and that was the that was the theory. So in the in the in the mid nineties, when I mid to late nineties, when I was about ninety six, I think I started my PhD. We we had this this idea that if you if you tr- get up and you train on an empty stomach, um, you could encourage the body to adapt to burn fat better, and and, wow. um, and certainly we showed that. But what and, and that was part of my PhD studies. But what was really interesting about that that work in the end was that women respond differently to men in that context. Ah. Um, so if you if you train fasted or, or, or when I say fasted, first thing in the morning without filling yourself full of, you know, wheat picks or porridge or whatever, yep. you, you, you burn fat at the time better and that's, that's pretty well known. But you also, by doing that, encourage the body to be able to burn, burn, burn fat better. Ah. Now, the interesting thing about that is that, um, is that men respond much better th- than women. Um, and I, although I haven't tested this hypothesis because it's very difficult to test, is that I think the reason for that is women already burn fat better anyway. Oh, and, okay. And so that the training in the fasted state business was was uh, I think it's something that endurance athletes, particularly men, should do. I think women women have the luxury of not necessarily having to do it because they 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 are good fat burners anyway. So that was one area that I, that I sort of kept working on a little bit. I've kept working on a little bit and maybe explain a bit more later. But um, I, I came to brought my family to New Zealand. Uh, about 13 years ago after that and uh, and I started doing some research um, in, in diabetes because what strangely strangely diabetes and 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 or understanding metabolism like I had to and particularly fat metabolism endurance athletes yeah um, allows you to understand why so many people get diabetes so one of the one of the I, I got involved in a bunch of starvation it might sound funny a bunch of starvation <laughs> studies um, and, and if you think about starvation, it's probably the biggest nutritional intervention you can give to someone is just not eat. Um, and one of the, in one of the starvation studies we did show, it was really interesting, we showed that when you, when you get fit, healthy people and you starve them, and I, I'm talking some pretty fit people here, um, you get this shift of fat from under their skin, where you know our spare tire where we keep fat, into the muscle. And that was really interesting. And, and, and that muscle, when I say into the muscle, it's in, in tiny little droplets that sit by the mitochondria that are able to be, it's able to, that fat's able to be broken down really easily and converted to energy. Yep. And, and so what we showed was endurance athletes, these people we studied, when, you, when, you didn't, when they didn't eat, in, instead of having uh, the opportunity to replenish their muscles with glycogen, you know, that important carbohydrate fuel, when they, when they couldn't eat any um, anything at all they re- they'd replace that with fat um and so that that allowed people to that allows people to continue exercising or, or have ha- gives muscles fuel for exercising despite 
you know, not eating for three or four days. And, and so that was a, you know, if I was thinking of a groundbreaking finding of mine, it would be that. But, but how does that, you know, like as an athlete, I know that when I, in my early years when I had a bad diet, um, I would hit the wall and then I'd almost be, well, not comatose, but, you know, the blood sugars were so low that I'd hit the wall and, and not be able to continue. Why does that not happen and why didn't I start to burn the fat? Well, that's, there's two different things going on there. There's what's happening, uh, it's what's happening in your blood and what's happening in your muscles. Um, when someone's exercising, the most important organ in the body is the brain. And, and, and when someone's asleep, the most important organ in the body is the brain. And when someone's doing anything, the most... In- so what, if the brain's not going to work properly, the rest of the body will, will not work properly in any way, shape or form. The brain, the, brain, the brain requires some glucose in the blood at all times. And the liver is the reservoir for that blood glucose. Now, what happens when someone's doing endurance exercise and all of a sudden they start to feel sleepy and their eyes go funny and they want to sort of crawl up the side of the road? And, yep. um, that's, that's called hypoglycemia. And that's, that's a function of, of the liver um, really not being fit enough. Now, that might sound a bit funny, but that's, that's what it is. Uh, mm-hmm. When someone trains... Uh, and, and does lots of endurance training, uh, their liver becomes fitter and, and it is able to uh, become a better reservoir uh, in, in, in a manner of speaking. So, um, but that's, that's aside from the, uh, that's, a, that's different, different but in a way related to the muscle. When someone trains, like when you contract the muscle a lot, which is what happens in training, the muscle adapts by becoming a much better fat burner. Um, and, and I guess what our research showed was that you can, um, training research showed is you can, you can encourage that adaptation. Now, probably the same thing happened, well, you can encourage that adaptation to occur more quickly if you, if you manipulate your diet when you train. Um, probably the same thing might happen in the liver to some extent as well. Um, it, it's really interesting, you know, I, I, you know we, we, in, 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 in endurance and, or in any sort of sports science, we think about the muscle all the time, but the liver is just as important. and, and right. uh, um, and yeah, having a healthy liver and, and making sure that 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 that, that, that adapts as well. Um, yeah, where was I going with so, that? Yeah, so that how a- does how does that work? You know, like um, for example, my mother she probably wouldn't want me to put this out there, but she's got fatty liver disease. Yes. What's actually happening there? Is that okay. uh, an unfit liver in, in, in that respect, or, or and how can you fight that? Well, that, now that's a, that's a really interesting one. So in a way. In a way, you know how I said knowing about athletes uh, or studying athletes allows you to study diabetes. Yes. I'll just go back to the muscle for a moment before I uh, answer your, your um, answer your question. When 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 someone's um, got type two diabetes, what happens is their muscle, and also we we've now, we now know their liver fills up with with fat, and it's these tiny little droplets of fat. And, and when when you get a muscle that's that's uh, muscle fibre, because muscles are just made up of these little fibres that are just basically long little cells, uh, when they fill full of fat, it it, it stops the muscle fibre being able to respond uh, to insulin. And insulin's this hormone that's secreted when you eat a carbohydrate-related meal or a carbohydrate-containing meal that causes the muscle to take up glucose. Now, if the muscle stops responding to that insulin after you eat carbohydrate, this muscle, which is a big part of your body, can't take up glucose, so your glucose stays high. And so you get this impaired, what they call glycemia. If your blood glucose goes high, bang, you've got diabetes. Um, that's, that's very quickly sort of what happens. But the liver is also involved. Because the liver um, uh, actually pr- produces glucose as well, um, It also when, when someone, um, sort of at the same time, when someone muscles get, muscle gets full of fat, the liver gets full of fat as well. Right. And the liver, the liver cells don't function properly either. And um, a, a few things happen, um, but the, the, at the same time, the liver doesn't regulate its glucose production as well. And so you end up with diet, you end up with the liver releasing, uh, probably releasing too much glucose, or not not being able to, to, to control blood blood sugar as well as it could. So Maybe you're going up and down. Well, and, and and it just it probably makes the diabetes worse. Of course, the trouble with having fatty liver too much is the liver can end up with um, um, what's the word? It can end up with I think scar tissue and things like that. Yep, so, cirrhosis of the liver. Or yeah, I think. I think sometimes it can end up with that. I'm not, not a real expert on, on uh, liver fat. But it, in a way, it's funny because it's all related. Is, is, is diabetes uh, is this t- uh, type 2 diabetes, which is what most people end up with, is, 
in, in and it's a huge problem in, in, yeah. in New Zealand, Australia, especially America, and increasingly China and India. It's when it's this uh, dysregulation of fat. It's when it's when um, usually what happens is people uh, spend too long where they um, they eat too much in relation to what they burn, and their body stores fill up with fat. Their, their adipose tissue fills up with fat, and and sort of broadly speaking, what hap- what happens is um, they exceed the capacity to, to to safely store the fat in their body. It spills over into the circulation, the blood, and then the blood delivers it to other tissues. And once it starts accumulating there, like in the muscle, like in the liver, even the heart and the pancreas, those organs don't work very well. And Shoot. And you end up with this um, inability to take up glucose, blood glucose rises, and, and bingo, you've got diabetes. Now, the interesting thing is athletes, when you, do, when you look at the, mu- the muscle of athletes, sometimes they just look like diabetes, diabetics. Their, really? muscles, yeah, their muscles can fill up full of fat. They can have high, um, um, this is well-trained people, they can end up with high levels of um, uh, blood fats. But the difference between athletes and and diabetics is the athletes can just get they can burn that fat out. They can get rid of it, and um, you know. So I suppose, where is that coming? Is that like when athletes have high cholesterol despite being extremely fit? Is that the same thing? Cholesterol? No, no. Cholesterol is a bit different. And cholesterol, <laughs> cholesterol, and, and whether it's high or low, become quite a uh, controversial thing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, no, cholesterol is a bit different. But, but what it comes down to is, and, and for me, um, you know, I'll probably get shouted down here by people on the other side of the, uh, you know, the radio listening, but um, for me, a big part of the diabetes problem, and I think there's a number of good, very well uh, good scientists that would, would agree with me here, is it's a, it's a function of the, the very much uh, a function of the, the inability of the muscles and maybe to some extent the liver and other tissues of, of people not to be able to actually utilize and burn the fat that ends up in their muscles and um and that's because they their mitochondrial volume which is your mitochondria these little organelles inside a muscle fiber that that use oxygen that produce this atp which is the fuel our muscles need to contract um and and they burn fat you can't burn fat without mitochondria and so if your mitochondrial volume uh, or the amount of mitochondria in your muscle gets really high you can chuck all this fat at the muscle and it'll just burn it up and and, um, uh, and and really, you know, if, if we could come up with a way of, uh, well, yeah, if you can come up with a way of increasing the mitochondrial volume, these little en- these little energy packets, energy producing and consuming packets in your muscle cells, you could you could counteract the diabetes epidemic. In fact, some of my colleagues in Australia, I know in Australia, I don't know if there's anyone here, um, they've come up with a drug that. That, that does that. I mean, wow. exercise does that, of course. If you make a muscle contract, you get lots of mitochondria and you can burn fat really well and it improves your endurance. But people don't want to exercise. So the, <laughs> they the want a pill to fix it. They do. The, so the scientists have come up with, um, with, with a, this pill that, um, that increases your mitochondria and wow. basically burns fat without exercising. Um, it's, called, uh, it's a drug called ACAR. I can't remember the, the big name uh, or the long chemical name, um, but it, it pretty much does the same thing. And, and How so, do we get this stuff? <laughs> well, actually, I think, it's, I think water of cotton on there, it's, it's one of these things that's now banned. Oh, bugger. There's a whole bunch of those things. There's a whole bunch of those sorts of drugs that do things like that. But, but this particular one um, can, can get rid of the fat out of your muscle cells and it improves the di- the. the 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 I guess it it, it helps counteract the, the diabetes thing and and um, by bur- by wow. helping to burn fat. So that would be huge if if that comes on the market. Yeah, it's 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 the holy grail for drug companies. Yeah. So do you think that's likely in the next few years? Has Mum got some hope? <laughs> um. Yeah, I think it is. I think someone's it, it's 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 already there. It's already there, and there might might even be another couple of um, th- uh, drugs that do something similar. It's already, there. but whether or not, you know, my I'm a little bit um, behind in, in 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 the reading and the science of some of that. But like any drug, it has a side effect. Yeah, yeah. and the side effects could be really bad. I'm, I, you know, my memories of reading some of the rodent studies about it is that the side effects aren't particularly good. But who knows? You know, some big drug company will come up with something that's got minimal side effects. Yeah, but. 
The better you know, would what? be to, to train and get it off that way. Yeah, but that exactly. isn't, you know, like with, um, like mum, you know, people like mum in the 70s and um, she trains five days a week. She yeah. eats a good diet. Um, women especially seem to have problems with hormonal weight coming on when estrogen dominance. Is that related to what you've been talking about? Oh, look, I'm not an expert on 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 that. I mean, certainly, you know, once you hit menopause, it's it's uh, you know the, the 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 sex hormones change where you store fat, and, and obviously also uh, how you burn fat. And I, I just don't know enough about uh, diabetes and, and and at that age. Yeah. Um, what I do know is, yeah, there's always you, uh, you know I can say well the drug has side effects and that, but actually some people will really, would really benefit from it. Um, Having said that, the vast majority of the population, when, you know, when I talk about side effects, the side effects of taking a drug are usually bad. The side effects of exercise are, oh, I feel good, <laughs> I've got better bone density, um, <laughs> you know, my mental health improves. So, you, you know. I know, but we're going to wear our joints out, Steve. I know. Well, that's, that's the downside. <laughs> the other- well, no, well, that's rubbish too. I can, I mean... Speaking from someone who's, you know, run 70,000 Ks in the last 25 years, my joints are fine. <laughs> um, That's interesting. What, what, I ask you, can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for it. So what sort of, do you, what, what um, I, I mean, you, you do more miles than anyone else, so you certainly have done in the past. How, how, how have you coped with that? With, the, with the joint Issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've had a very bad back from an injury where I broke two vertebrae and four of my discs are, are buggered. Apart from that, um, and the, you know the consequences of that, I don't have any joint issues whatsoever, and my bone density is perfect. Um, I'm 47, and everything's hunky dory. Yeah. And I've done some pretty, you know, like push the body beyond what's healthy obviously um, in in a lot of the races that I've done and I have no real bad consequences from it I have a few aches and pains but I think at 47 everybody does Um, yeah so I'm I'm I believe we are born to run and that when we don't run or when we don't do cardio and weight resistance I think that's an important part of it um, then we degrade a lot quicker you know we age a lot quicker yeah. Um, that's my that's my theory. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I I mean I'm 48. Um, <laughs> I saw one year on you, but I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, in fact, uh, if if someone was to ask me what the elixir of youth was, I would say it's um, if it was come down to one, two two words, I'd say uh, resistance training. Yes, and, yep. and I've often thought why. Um, and I've got my my eldest son 17. My my second my my other sons. 14 and I sort of look at what they do and and when, when you when you're young or I sort of think back to when I was young it was a long long time ago now but you, you, you're always sort of doing things where you're testing your strength or you're doing something silly and jumping from somewhere high yeah. to somewhere low and and in a way you're sort of doing that you, you're pushing your muscles but when you get older and and I've I've certainly felt this over the last few years I, you know I sit down and I look at a computer screen all day yeah that's, that's the antithesis isn't it's it? the it's worst not, yeah, I think that's what's that's what's aging us the worst. That and stress. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, yeah, the stress thing—it's a whole whole other ball game. But but certainly, I think that you know the diabetes. Actually, I, was, I, I I give this little lecture to my students, and I I, I show the the prevalence of diabetes since the the late since the late eighties right up till now or, or till recently, and I show them the the sales in uh, personal computers oh. and. Yeah. And really, it's you know this is a long bow to draw, but they I can't help it starts to track, and uh, they start to parallel to some extent. And I can't help thinking that that the huge increase in in diabetes, and, and I think everyone would agree, is at least partly a function of um, a lack of physical activity. But I think more so, it's a lack of physical physical activity in the workplace. Mm. You know, and I'm an exercise physiologist. I know all about this stuff. But I sit down in front of a computer all day, and it's stressful. You have to, yeah. And and that you know that's standing workstations. That was something we were actually trying to do. Steve and I were trying to do a bit of a study in in schools. We haven't got there yet, but we would like to take a classroom, take 
the the chairs out of the classroom, do mobility work with children, and see what the results were. Hopefully, we'll get the study up and running one day. Um, but I uh, alone, I think, standing all day and working rather than sitting would be a major breakthrough in offices for starters. Oh, I, yeah, I absolutely think so. I mean, the, 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 absolutely. Because when you're sitting down, you're minimising what muscle you're using. When you're standing, you've got to use those postural muscles. You tend to shift from one foot to the other. I mean, uh, I, I think that, that alone would make a huge difference. And, and, and I think some people, I know some of my colleagues, I've actually got a standing desk uh, just recently. Uh, some of my colleagues have done the same uh, and, and they, they've suggested, you know, they think that they just feel, feel, feel less tired, strangely feel less tired at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're moving. And I think, like, a lot of people are going, oh, I've got to go and get my daily exercise. So they, they sit for eight to ten hours. Then they go and smash themselves running for an hour or, or go to the gym and they haven't warmed up and there's a whole lot of injuries happening because we're going from the sitting state into yeah. a full-on, I'm now an athlete for an hour and then I'll yeah. go and sit back down again. And I think that transition is also causing problems. You know, We're like this all day, bent over, um, yeah. and, and then we suddenly go running and a lot of the athletes that I train when you look at them, they're running like they were sitting. Yeah, I, I mean that's me probably. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's exactly that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, uh, beans at the waist, I, pelvis is yeah. tipped forward, etc. That's 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 the big killer. I mean, you know, we we yeah, someone one day people will wake up to it. Yeah, and I think even if they didn't exercise at all, like didn't go for a run or didn't go to the gym or whatever, but just stood all day. And stood and moved all day. Um, uh, what was that? One one of my f- friends, Chris Luke, um, he said the equivalent in a year's standing in an office instead of sitting is the equivalent of running fifty something marathons, yeah, yeah. like calorie burning wise. Yeah, that's that's, that alone would help the obesity situation if we all stopped sitting. Yeah, says, no. says us both sitting right now. That's right, yeah. But I will get up and stand later. <laughs> yeah, we will. And, um, yeah, and, and I think being bent over screens all day with our, with our um, phones, with our computers, that's, that's killing us, not the sport. You know, people keep yeah. telling me I'm going to wreck myself, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'll get the odd injury or the odd torn muscle, um, but I heal quicker. I'm, I'm younger and stronger and, you know, everything else is better because I exercise every day or pretty yeah, much yeah, every day, yeah. you know. You're right. One of the things that, that, that I've thought about a lot and I would say discovered, but we, we did a bit of work with um, part of the research, we did a bit of work with um, uh, some young Maori men and this is when I was working with Chris Cunningham at the Research Centre for Maori Health and Development down in Wellington at Massey and, and we, we looked at... Um, uh, sort of markers of pre-diabetes and um, um, yeah, sort of pre-diabetes. These are all healthy guys, um, but a ve- but a variety of different body weights, and, and so they're outwardly healthy. They weren't diabetic or anything. Um, and w- what we showed was that that their their chance or their risk, according to these markers, of getting diabetes uh, could be explained in large part uh, by their uh, their um, if fitness, when uh, when that was related to the, to their lean body mass, so that tells you two things. It tells you that um, it's it's the the fitness of the muscle that's important, independent of. I mean, body fatness was still important, but it, it was independent of body fatness. Huh. In other words, um, when well, I guess what I'm getting at is is so I, you, could be, you could be overweight and fit still. Well, well, I think there's t- what, what I'm getting at is there's there's a little bit too much, I believe, too much emphasis solely on um, people people's body shape and their fatness rather than their fitness. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's really like if you if you've ever had to lose body fat, it, it's really hard to do. Mm, um, Gosh, and yes. it it is. I mean, it means you've got to go hungry. It means you've got to look at what you eat, but. But for some people, at least, it's much easier to just be fitter and go and do things and play sport and, and do some exercise and, and, and say, well, I'd have to worry about 
um, and not concentrating your body fatness, but know, having this message that that you know that um, that fitness is just as important as fatness yes. and independent. I think it's a very powerful one. And and when we talk about you know um, trying to prevent diabetes and just basically be healthy. Um, you know, be aware that it's not all about having the. Uh, yeah, it's not a all six about. Pack. Well, <laughs> well, it's not all about a six pack, and it's not all about worrying about what your percentage body fat is and stuff like that. You want to be healthy. You got to, it's, it's just as important, or, or maybe more important, to be physically active and and go out and enjoy it, and and you know, do some sport and what have you. So. Um, mm, that's- that's a really interesting thing because I've seen in ultra marathons, you know, where you're doing extreme distances, some really unusual, unexpected body shapes of people, you know, people that you would look at them and go, well, they don't look like a, a runner, you know, and uh, um, in the typical sense of the word, and yet they are fit, they're strong, they get through, whereas someone who's skinny and looks fit doesn't get through. Um, it can be independent of how much weight you are carrying and I also think the other interesting side of that story is if you look at some of the really big muscular guys that have got you know bodybuilding people um, when I look at my brother he's you know phenomenally built but I worry about the fact that his liver is probably getting massive amounts of protein, he's got to keep this massive amount of muscle uh, going, you know, with the same size heart. You know, there's not, it's not just about no, how much fat, yeah. fat percentage, you know, yeah. and you can get too low as well. Um, you know, a lot well, of it, when people are, fat percentage is, is a bit of a, um, you got to, when you talk, when you start talking about, it, you got to know what it means. So, so the, the the people with the lowest body fat percentage are often uh, bodybuilders for two reasons, because they they prior to competition restrict really what they eat and become very thin, but also because there's so much muscle that it dilutes the fat. Yes. Yep. And but that doesn't necessarily make them healthier, so to speak. Um, and um, <laughs> Um, but you're right. The the when someone's got a lot of muscle, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, energy uh, taken up in 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 maintaining that muscle. Bodybuilders aren't, you know, I don't. It's not maybe not the right word to explain. They're not. It's not really the way we're naturally meant to look. The way no. we're naturally meant to look is is probably more like a, I wouldn't say an ultra marathoner, but someone that's just a, a bit of an endurance athlete and um, who's generally pretty skinny. Probably doesn't have hold a lot of muscle. Um, because in an evolutionary context, we can't afford to hold a lot of muscle because it, its energetic cost is too high. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess if you were to put a um, put a, a bodybuilder back to the, the the days when we were hunter gatherers versus a, a skinny little um, you know marathon runner, then probably the marathon runner is the one that's going to be it's able to survive, survive <laughs> because they don't need as much food. Um, <laughs> You know, that so, makes okay. that makes sense, yeah. But even on the heart and the circulation, I mean, I've I don't know this, but I've heard that a lot of bodybuilders develop type two diabetes later in life when they stop training because of the muscle that they've got to carry. Is that correct, or is that just oh, rumor? The trouble the trouble with bodybuilding is it's so caught up with. Um, I, I don't know enough about it. But the trouble with bodybuilding as as, as an activity and as a sport is. It's so caught up with with um, you know people taking all sorts of uh, pharmacological agents that encourage um, mm. muscle growth that you you, you uh, over the last twenty years and you'd have to or well, thirty years and you'd have to look at it in that context you, you just wouldn't know what the what the cause was. Right. Um, I mean, some people end up with diabetes for you know type one diabetes instead of type two. So I, I just don't know know enough about it. Um, but. Um, but I guess the point is that, that, yeah, I mean, it's great to have a bit of muscle and it looks good and it can help you lift things, uh, but it comes at a cost as well. And that, yeah. you know, and as a minimal, it comes at a cost of your grocery bills. <laughs> <laughs> and your, your, your ultimate sort of uh, human as, a, as an athlete then would be someone who's muscular but lean uh, yeah. and not overly muscular and yeah. endurance rather than speed. Yeah, well, from an evolutionary perspective. It, well, if you this, I, now I've had some sort of interest in 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 this. It's it's if you were to um, look at the way a human is meant to be or what they're meant to look like, you, you'd probably go back to um, maybe ten thousand years ago, which is at the probably at the point at which we when when I don't think we evolved much from 
evolved much from there in, in, the, in the survival of the fittest concept. We've probably devolved, and some of those <laughs> pictures you see on T-shirts and things um, show. But, but there's, there's, some, there's some archaeological evidence, or archaeological, maybe some paleo paleontological evidence, I don't know, to show that the people back then were, were had bone density, some of the people back then had bone density as uh, better than ours. They had uh, um, bone, uh, yeah, so stronger bones that were as tall as us that were, um, you know, that probably died because they couldn't eat because they ground their teeth down and things like that. And, and again, I'm not an expert in this area, but, um, you know, you, you could, you could, you could develop hypothesis to say that the environment in which those hunter-gatherers were living is the environment that our bodies have been evolved yep. to be in. Um, and, and what was that environment? Well, you can get a bit of an idea by looking back at, um, I guess, you know, uh, you know, historical records and what you can sort of dig up, paleontology or whatever, um, but also looking at remnant hunter-gatherer populations. And there's still, you know, um, less and less of those around the world, but some people still live nomadic and hunter-gatherer lifestyles to some extent. Um, and certainly 50 and 100 years ago they did, and there's good records of those people. So the, the people from the Kalahari, the, the mm. Australian Aboriginals and, and the Yache warriors, and, and there's a whole bunch of them, and probably, probably who knows, there's, there's, there's any number of, of, of people doing it on their own around the world. And when you look at these people, they're inevitably thin. Um, yeah. They're not muscular, not overly muscular. Um, if you look at some, there's some great historical records of Australian Aboriginal, and and you know some of the men there are they're big and they're tall and they they've got muscles, but they don't carry much body fat. And these people were were tremendous athletes um, yeah. from from some of the some of the the information I've read. Um, and and they had to be because they had to walk from A to B. You know, every day they when you read some of the historical records from the the 1950s. Um, about the, the 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 people in the Kalahari, that they, they would um, they would easily walk 20, 25 or thirty kilometres a day just to move camp. Oh, uh, see, I needed you a couple of years ago. I had this TV pilot, this a um, a TV concept that we started, and it was all about are we born to run? Are we made? Is this what our history is? Oh, yes. So we came up with a whole lot of um, these legends from around the world that yes. proved that humans all over the world in different pockets had always done long distance running, walking, trekking, whatever you wanted to call it, for a matter of survival. And then yes. we were going to reenact some of these legends. So we went to Australia and we did a the pilot for this and we never got past there because Discovery decided they didn't want us in the end. But anyway, um, we did um, – there was an Aboriginal man who ran 280 k's to – to get a, uh, this was back in 1920, so not that long ago, um, to save a friend who was dying to get medical help. And yes. they were going to send horses, and he says, no, I'm faster than the horses, I'll get there. Yes. And yes. he ran and got there, delivered this telegram, and turned around and ran back. So we reenacted this, um, this story to yes. try and show that modern-day man, we could never do it as well as he could. Uh, mm. He, you know, ran probably without shoes and had two water stops, no crew. We had crew, we had everything. And my my co-host ended up in hospital with a tetanus seizure, (laughs) (laughs) nearly kicked the bucket. Um, And we were looking at that whole hypothesis. Are we as a species? Because constantly I'm asked, well, why do you do this? And this is dangerous and you're going to, you're going to, you know, wreck your joints and all that sort of thing. And my argument has always been, no, this is what humans have done throughout millennia. And here we are in the last hundred years and we think we know it all now. And that was the way we are meant to be. So running 20k a day or 30 or 50 or whatever we had to do was, was well within the realms of, of, normal human endurance. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. There, there's a few stories. I, I give a little lecture to my, my uh, students if I get the chance uh, once a year on something like this, and I, I describe a couple of stories, and, and one in particular is um, the Battle of Hastings. Mm. And, and the Battle of Hastings was when poor old uh, Harold uh, uh, Godwinson, I think his name was, was the, 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 he, he was the king. Um, of, of England and so 1066 is a long time ago. They, if they had horses, I don't know how many they had, but they certainly did have motor vehicles. And uh, and they fought with swords and they had to carry those around and 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 what have you, much, which must have been pretty heavy. But there he was down. He was he had his cousin or whoever was William the Conqueror was 
you know, the story was he was going to come across from France and invade. And so he was sitting down in London somewhere. But, but meanwhile, some other relative um, who was a, a Viking decided he was going to come and try and invade the north. So poor old um, Harold had to take his men over the space of about three days. I don't know, it was like 150 miles north to um, uh, Stanford Bridge. I can't remember exactly where, but I know it's a long way north. And, and might have been 80 miles. Uh, and then he had to fight off this guy, uh, him and his army had to fight off this guy. Um, and if you can imagine fighting in armour, I mean, it must be, it would involve <laughs> a bit of stuff. And, and then three days later, um, his, his, his other mate, um, William the Conqueror, came down and across to near Hastings there. And so they took, they had to take three days or, or something like that to get all the whole lot down to the bottom of the, the country there and do another fight. Now, Oh, this is all. This is all stuff you can just read in the literature and, and, and in, in history. And, and but when you think about the physical effort that these guys had to make, and, and the mileage they had to do every day and carry all this stuff with them, it was pretty awesome. Mm. Um, and that was just what they did. Yeah, it's what we've always done. That type of because we had to survive. You know, That's we right. had to fight. We had to get a food, and and that's our natural state. And I think it ends up. In the way that we're living today in our cosy, everything's all about being cosy and comfortable and warm and and it's actually detrimental to our mental health and yes. our and our physical health. I, I really, you know, I think that's why there's such a boom in extreme sport because there's this need for people mentally as well as physically to be pushing the limits and, and pioneering and and exploring and finding out who the heck they are in nature. And I think that, well, I know it's helped me in my life hugely, you know, confidence-wise, mental health-wise. You know, uh, ultra-marathon runners are sort of portrayed as being those crazies running away or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's probably true, but the other 90% could probably do with it, then they'd have less troubles with alcohol and drugs and obesity and everything else. <laughs> I think we're all dealing with our sedentary lifestyles in different ways um, and the problems that are caused from it. You know, we have to have outlets for our stress and we have to have outlets for our physical aggression and all these sort of things that are, end up being social ills are related, I think, to our separation from nature and our separation from being physically active in nature. That's my answer to the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly some truth in that. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it's interesting, you know, what people perceive as... You're right. What people perceive these days as as a lot of exercise is 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 just so out of the realm of what our body expects. Um, and another little example I gave, and I got this from somewhere else, was that there's a poet, poet called William William Wordsworth, and there's a someone wrote a, a book, a, a biography about him, and, and they describe him walking walking 15 kilometres every day and he was just a poet and and, he, and I think somewhere there they describe his legs as being, you know, skinny <laughs> and something like that and, and and it was just, and it was pre-industrial England I think and and that's what people used to do. They used to just walk and from one village to the next 15k a day was probably just run-of-the-mill average for the, the sedentary person almost. Yeah, yeah. If you talk to someone today about walking 15k in a day, they'd say, what are you, a nutter or something? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly. It's how things have changed. Yeah, and, and we don't have to anymore. We've got cars and we've got comfortableness everywhere. Um, and, yeah, I could get on my soapbox on the, the social, uh, you know, problems that rise from that, especially with our young people and stuff. But, yeah, it's pretty... <laughs> well, it was pretty interesting. I, I, I was, so I've just been in America with my kids and, and we had to stay in Richmond because uh, my son was doing the, the, the road cycling champs there and... Um, and I was, I had to get, I had to get a cheap hotel that was sort of out in the suburbs. And um, when we were there, there was no footpaths. And and yeah. I, I had to, you can't I had to, walk uh, in America. And I had to find. We were just next to this big shopping centre, but there was no footpath between me and the shopping centre. And I felt so conspicuous because I was the only one that was walking 150 yards. There was no one else. Yeah. There was no footpaths. There was no way to get across the lights. And it was just the whole place was just designed not to not to walk. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. America's really extreme for that. Yeah. You, you, yeah, it's actually taking your life into your own hands in America if you try and walk anywhere, unless you're out in out in the bush somewhere. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully we're a whole lot smarter than that here. <laughs> yeah, I think we are. I think definitely we are. So tell us a little bit about your kids and what they're up to and how did oh. you e- end up raising two um, elite athlete children? Well, I, I, I've got three kids. So I, um, I've got uh, my daughter's the, the oldest and then I've got a son. Uh, some Elizabeth's uh, my daughter. She's 18. And my son, Robert's 17. And then my youngest, Thomas, is, is 14. Oh, so he's still um, coming up. <laughs> It'll be three so, soon. He's getting big now. Um, I guess you, you, you know they got into sport because mum and dad um, were always doing stuff, and um, and I suppose that's how it works, isn't it? If you see mum and dad doing exercise, it becomes normal. It, mm. You normalise physical activity. So um, yeah, and, and they, I suppose they probably spent a few Saturday afternoons at bike races and things like that, and it sort of becomes. Might as well hop on a bike too. Yeah, and I I don't suppose we ever um, we certainly I've never I don't think we've ever pushed the kids into it. But um, one one of the things that that I have really have learned in watching the kids is that um, they they'll especially with sport. If sport's great because it's usually a pretty safe social environment for kids, and that's you know if I've encouraged it, I've encouraged them to do things because I know that they're doing it. You know, although riding a bicycle is not necessarily safe, but you know that the people they 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 are doing it with are, are generally pretty level-headed. Yeah, they're, not silly. They're, they're, you know, the thing about I always think about the thing about cycling and triathlon is the kids can go and socialise as they ride their bikes or at a race, and then you know they'll if they go somewhere they're all going to be that tired. They'll be in bed by nine thirty. <laughs> Perfect way to stop them it drinking is. or getting into drugs or anything like that. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. So the, the local, um, the locals here in Palmerston North, I like to say we've probably got the best um, cyclists almost in the world, um, and, I, and I say I say that you know we had a couple of junior world champions here, and people that have, that have gone, gone to worlds and Oceania champions and various national champions, and almost I, I put that down to the fact that we've got a really um, um, a really good social network amongst the kids, and 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 it and partly. So they enjoy not just the ex- exercise, but they enjoy the social aspect of doing it together. And I think those that's really important for kids. I mean, if they didn't enjoy the social side of it, they just wouldn't do the sport, whether or not they enjoy the sport or not. I think that's really important. Um, but the other side of the success of kids is it's like any environment. If, if, if success is normalised or if achievement is normalised, then it becomes a whole lot easier. You know, mm-hmm. the bar sort of set higher and, and – but. Oh, they just take it in their stride. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's sort of who you – I mean, my kids have been pretty successful, I suppose. I mean, they're still just kids, but it's around because they hang around with other kids that are the same. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think sport is, a, is a, another good way of keeping kids on the, on the straight and narrow, if you like, or getting them back out into nature or um, getting them away from bloody PCs and laptops and Xboxes and all that. Uh, to, I mean, we need those. We need those in our professional lives or whatever. But I think if we if they don't have that other side to their life, that's when kids run into trouble. And then when they don't have the role models like your kids have had, um, you know, not all kids are so lucky to have to have that. Um, that's where we run into a lot of lot of trouble. Yeah, uh, I remember. There's the, the, I, I don't think he's in the position anymore. But the the, the fellow who was the the chief. Uh, Justice of Children or something like Andrew Beecroft, I sort of remember a a statement that he said once about that that he's hardly ever seen a kid in court who's been involved in sport. Yeah. Um, And that's, again, because they spend their energy on the football field. Exactly. Uh, They're getting all their aggression, all their stupid hormones out. They're getting it all out there on the sport field and then they want to go and sleep, have a good feed and go to sleep. (laughs) Generally. (laughs) Within reason, surely they have a little bit of fun as well. So, Steve, what sort of um, advice can you give to, now going back onto the sports side of things, what is the ultimate way to get fit and lose this weight? I mean, a lot of people are fading, facing weight loss issues or obesity issues. Um, and a lot of people come to me as a coach for running uh, and they want to lose weight, especially women. And 
they go, oh, I want to train for a marathon or an ultra marathon. My first question to them is always, are you wanting to run because you want to run or you want to run because you want to lose weight? And if it's lose weight, then I actually send them over to the, you know, high intensity training, the interval training, the weight uh, resistance training. And they look at you like, whoa, you know, I thought that running is the best weight loss. Now, I'm speaking against my own business here, but... um, (laughs) I've done steady state cardio for so many years and never got skinny. I ran through New Zealand, did 2,250 kilometres in 42 days and lost one kilo. Right. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> well, of course, when you do stuff like that, you got, you got to, I mean, you got to eat because you've got to keep your energy levels up. Well, I'm good at eating. Just, I am good at that. I had a discussion with someone the other day about losing weight. So I can only lose weight when I, when I stop exercising. And in a way, there's, a, there's, a, there's probably an element of truth to that because when you're actually doing stuff, you've got to eat. You've got to mm. fuel your body. You've got to keep your brain ticking over. Um, I, I think the social side of it, you, you've got to get to, to – to get it, I mean, it's all about time, uh, get, doing stuff over time. It's all about having a sustainable, um, beca- become having exercise and, and, and a pretty good diet becoming part of your lifestyle. And the way to do the only way you can really do that, doesn't matter whether you're a man or you're a woman, but especially for women, I think, is, is, um, is to have a good social environment. So you've got to put yourself in a position if you're going to take up something, it doesn't matter if it's a sport or whether it's exercise for recreation or whatever, is, is, it, is somewhere you've got to go to have, there's got to be some uh, positive social experience. Does that make sense? Mm. You've got to have friends there or, you, you, you know, it's got to be a fun environment because if it's not, you're not going to do it for very long. Yeah. Um, so your strategy has to be around, okay, what can I do that I'm going to enjoy? And there's people around me that, you know, that's if you like talking to people, people around me that I can, you know, get a bit of, a, uh, a, um, you know. A lift uh, and, and support. Yeah. Yeah, support from and, and, and help with, and that, that's how it's got to pan out. Some people like team sports. So, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's no point if, if you're not a person that can do stuff on your own, there's no point becoming an ultra-marathon runner, is there? <laughs> or, but if you like people around you, then you know, just get involved in some team sport. And um, um, But some people are, are loners and they're, they're quite happy with their own company, so they can, you know, they can go and do, do something that takes them out on their own. Oh, to be honest, I think that's almost the most, that's more important than saying, oh, you need to do this type of exercise or that type of exercise. Is that, yep. you know, the first thing is it's got to be sustainable and therefore you've got to enjoy it. And, um, and then, of course, there's all sorts of, for most people who don't get enough exercise, most sedentary people, just going from doing nothing to something is the biggest step. Just um, change little bits. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I say to people, if, 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 for a lot of people, it's simply saying, some people do absolutely nothing, and it's simply saying, okay, I'll get up in the morning and I'll walk down and get some milk or buy the newspaper before breakfast. And that's, for them, that's like, that's the biggest thing they could do. It's the first step, or and that would make a big difference to their life. One, you know, going from that, um, I mean, there's any number of things. I, I, I sort of agree with you about the... You know, in, in terms of weight loss, intensity is actually important. Mm. Um, How do you do that with somebody? One of the problems I face as a coach, if someone's yeah. really overweight, you can't go and chuck them on a treadmill and make them sprint, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, And you also don't want to push them too hard, but you've, all, you've got to get that heart rate up to a level, but it's got to be when in a safe realm if they're very overweight. Yeah. It's quite well, a it's quite a um, battle. For someone that's really overweight, actually getting up out of a chair and walking can be an exercise in resistance itself. Um, some people, you know, one of the things I learnt, um, you know, some very good studies that have been done uh, um, on on elderly people, for instance, and, and exercise, and um, and and you know what they say is that sometimes the elderly people they're so weak that they've got yeah. to do resistance training before they can do any any uh, cardio. Yep. Because they can't actually, you know, you've got to be able to get out of the chair before you can get, run on the treadmill, sort of thing. So, yeah, it's 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 um, it depends on the individual, but yeah, I mean, certainly for sort of, and probably more particularly for women because they're already relatively good fat burners. Um, to, to get out and the resistance training is going to, the resistance or, or some sort of intensity training is probably going to be be quite useful. Um, I think horses for courses. The the older one, one thing I personally think is from my own experience is the older you get, um, the more important resistance training is. 
because as I say, yes. when you're young, you've got this brute strength that you've yeah. got. You've got muscles. You've, you've yeah. got muscles. You go out and you, you know, you arm wrestle your mate and you push cars and you do stuff. So you sort of do that resistance training. When you get older, you're more sensible. So you don't do those sorts of things. <laughs> but the body expects you to. So, so, you know, going back to what I said before, the elixir of youth, I think it's probably something like, uh, uh, resistance training, of course, with a bit of cardio. Chuck. With a bit of cardio, Chuck. Like um, going, this is a, an area that um, I want to actually write a book on. Or is um, you know fitness after forty and staying fit into you know old age. Um, and I'm using my my parents a bit as a um, testing ground at the moment. <laughs> so I've got Mum, who I had. She's been doing aqua aerobics three times a week been doing that for years and I've really pushed her to get into the gym she took a stumble one day when we were out walking and I realized that she couldn't get up like her glutes were gone and that yeah. just let set off alarm bells for me I've got to get her in the gym I've got to get her training those glutes that she's able to do those normal daily things about getting up out of chairs and doing all that sort of stuff and now she's loving it um, and Going to the gym doesn't need to be a, a, a scary experience because there's just big boys doing big weights. Nowadays, it's not. And she's quite happy going in there doing her resistance training three times a week, her cardio and her aerobic stuff at the aqua aerobics. And that's a good combination. But that, the older you get, the more time you have to spend being active. I think it, the older I get, the more I, I do less junk miles and more resistance training and more mobility work and more strengthening work because I'm having to counter the fact that I'm getting older and I'm losing muscle mass and all that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and moving forward, like I watch my father, who's 77, and he's a machine, you know, like he has never stopped. He doesn't do cardio but he's always out physically chainsawing and painting and chopping trees and gardening and all that sort of thing. And at the age of 77, despite being a smoker, um, incredibly strong and incredibly fit. He could do with more mobility work. I think that proves, yeah, you've got to do more as you get older. You can't, as soon as you let go and go, well, I'm old, I don't have to perform anymore, that's when you're in trouble. Yeah, I think you. you I mean, I'm, I usually see when I get to that age, but I think you're dead right. You, you've. I mean, and I've heard. I've heard. Um, you know, endurance athletes talk about masters athletes talk about this. They say, look, I, you know, if if you stop, it's really hard to get going again. And mm. and, and I think probably there's a truth to that. You 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 um uh, you you've just got to keep doing it. You've got to keep it up. And the, yeah, the strength work or doing something that makes your muscles have to work hard is, 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 is absolutely vital. Interestingly, there's, there's some really good research um, now on, on you know, older people and, and certainly cardio and, and, and the heart and showing that um, you know, the difference between um, um, I mean, a healthy heart's really important as you age, of course, because cardiovascular disease is still a big killer. Um, and, and showing that you, your heart, if you keep exercising and you, you keep fit, your heart re retains this sort of flexibility and, and capacity that it, that, it, um, that it doesn't if you're sedentary. Yeah. And, yeah, and, um, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not sure if they know the, the molecular reasons behind that yet, but I suppose like anything, if you don't, it's, you know, it comes down to the old ages, if you don't use it, you lose it, don't Yeah, you? It's, it's, it's as basic as that, <laughs> you know, and, and keeping um, someone who's really interested in fitness in general, you know, I've, I've discovered that just being a runner for years, I was completely unfit in other areas. Now I'm trying to experiment and see what I can do with this old body <laughs> um, and how I can still change it, make it fitter, stronger in other directions. Um, yes. It's very hard to keep everything fit, eh? It's very hard to be fit cardio-wise, strength-wise, mobility-wise, balance and all the rest of it. You know, it's um, it's an ongoing battle, basically. <laughs> you know, well, there's only so many hours of the day, I guess. Exactly, and we've got to work, unfortunately. That's right. <laughs> hey, Steve, look, thank you so much for your time. That was uh, Professor Steve Stannard from Massey University talking with us today on Pushing the Limits. Um Really great insight, Steve, and thanks for your, your time. I hope people have taken away a little bit of uh, some knowledge okay, from no, our no, talk. Pleasure. 
You've been listening to Pushing the Limits, brought to you by Running Hot Coaching, your online health and fitness coaching platform. For more information, visit us at www.runninghotcoaching.com.